Hey, thank you so much for being here for our special podcast simulcast with our friends from Zoom into Books and Headline Books. This is the Big Time Talker podcast, and we're everywhere now on Audible. We're uh, on iHeartRadio. Wherever you download your podcast, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for subscribing. Tell a friend if you like what you hear. And it's all made possible by SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. In-person meetings are back. And now, if you're a virtual uh, meeting planner or you're an in-person meeting planner, you can find a whole bunch of great speakers at SpeakerMatch.com. And if you're a platform speaker, hop online and meet those meeting planners too, SpeakerMatch.com. Today's guest is my pal, Calvin Fisher. Uh, We spotted Calvin a couple of years ago when he had self-published his introductory book, and it was so good that we uh, we talked with Calvin about Apocalypse Bounty and said, look, this is, uh, this is better than a self-published book. This needs to be put out by a, a real honest-to-goodness publisher. We think you got big-time potential. And uh, sure enough, he got signed by Headline Books. Uh, Apocalypse Bounty, his debut book, uh, won a whole bunch of awards. The next book in this series is called Storm Rise, and it's uh, set to debut soon. Calvin Fisher joins us on the Big Time Talker podcast. Hello, Calvin. Hey, Burke. Thanks for having me on the program. Excited to be here. Well, you've got to be pretty excited about the way this whole thing is is coming out. Uh, you know, a few years ago, you're a guy who had an idea, and now your second novel's coming out with the Independent Publisher of the Year. Your first novel won a whole bunch of awards. Um, how does that make a young man from, uh, from Minneapolis feel? Uh, it's hard to explain. You know, it's one of those things where a few years ago when I started, I couldn't imagine being where I am today. Um, you know, signing with a publishing house has been such an awesome opportunity and, you know, just that, and a lot of the awards come in, I'm just super grateful to be here and, and really excited where we're heading with headline books. You know, a, a lot of people who listen to the podcast or catch the videos online, um, are writers or they want to be writers or they think I've got a book in me. I ought to do that. I wonder, because you're a relatively young guy, if there was somebody in your childhood, maybe who encouraged you and said, you know what, you're, you're good at this. Was there somebody like that? Yeah, I'd have to say, um, probably my mom is the, the number one supporter as far as that goes, which is, I guess in some ways, sort of a cliche answer, but you know, she's always supported my um, passion for reading and writing and always took me to the bookstore to get, get new books and sort of explore that, uh, the hobby and just sort of, you know, becoming sort of part of my life. Um, yeah, so huge influence from her and I definitely wouldn't be where I am today without her. So it's great to have support from mom and, and support at home when you're trying to do something that's a little different than what everybody else does. I'm assuming there are no other award-winning science fiction authors in your family, right? You would be the only <laughs> one. I'm the first. Yeah. I think I'm the pioneer in that field. <laughs> well, so as you're coming up and you're in school and, and you go all the way back to elementary school or, or middle school, do you remember the first story that you ever wrote? The first thing that came out of your head and got onto the paper? Yeah, I had a, a comic book series that I started writing when I was a kid. Um, I forget the name here. of the hero, hero exactly, yeah, but he was just at that time sort of a mishmash of different things I liked, like Spider-Man and Avatar, The Last Airbender. 
it definitely would have gotten sued for copyright if I tried to, you know, release it big time. Um, but yeah, I just came out with a, wrote a whole bunch of different comics and my dad was kind enough to print them off at the office. So I had a whole stack that I would sell to my different neighbors and stuff who are, you know, can't say they're probably the most riveting stories in the world, but they, uh, they got a kick out of seeing me sort of going around the neighborhood. And, you had a childhood uh, comic that. book racket happening. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, was there a time where you looked at your writing as a young person and you maybe you looked at your buddy's writing and, and something clicked and you thought, you know, my stuff is not like their stuff. You know, my stuff is maybe a little more advanced than their stuff. Yeah, there was definitely a time in high school as I was writing my first novel that sort of hit. Um, I think I was sort of wrong in a lot of senses where I was like, oh, this is going to be the big time book. This one's going to, you know, come out and do amazing. But I definitely wasn't at the level I sort of thought in my head I was at at that point, you know. Um, but I think definitely in high school is when I started to realize, hey, this is something that I think if I keep at and work at, I could, you know, potentially do full time uh, is a living one day. And and is that uh, was that the goal even as a high school kid that you thought I'd love to be an, an author I want to write for a living? Yeah, I think it was around freshman year of high school. So pretty early on, I knew that that was the direction I wanted to take my life and um, just sort of get my writing to the next level. Uh, trying to make a, a daily habit out of it and get sort of that um, workhorse mentality. You know, the, the thousands of writers out there, probably hundreds of thousands of writers, and it seems like everybody does it a little bit differently. But how did you sort of sharpen that saw? How did you keep getting better and better? You said, uh, well, I thought I was better than I really was. So there, there needs to be some sweat that goes into that. So what did that sweat look like for Calvin Fisher? I think a lot of it comes down to the editing process. When you go back and reread your work, especially when there's been sort of a span of time since you first writ wrote it, like two or three months, you come back and it's a lot easier to see the chinks in the armor, so to speak. And just um, things can just seem so good when you write them down for the first time, but you can come back and realize how parts are clunky. And I think a lot of that is, oh, I'm, you know, I'm writing in the same way a lot. I'm using way too many similes and things like that. And I think when you start to realize you have some of those bad habits, um, it becomes a lot easier in the future to avoid them if you sort of have that mental awareness to break some of those habits. Calvin Fisher's our guest today. He is the award-winning author of Apocalypse Bounty. Brand new book, Storm Rise, is on the way soon from our friends at Headline Books. Um, so when you went away to college, did you think I'm going to take, uh, you know, courses that are going to help me with my writing? And did you do that? I did. Yeah. I think one of the most beneficial things for college writing is the creative writing seminars where the biggest benefit you get is feedback, especially from your peers of, you know, everyone reading your book and providing feedback, I think is the best, one of the best ways to learn um, how your writing comes across to other people. Um, Versus even, you know, sitting in a lecture about writing, I don't think you get as much out of this, that direct feedback and conversation. So how hard is that, though? I mean, look, I'm, uh, these things are like your babies because, uh, you know, I'm sure it takes you months, years to write something. And then you kind of put it out there and nobody wants to hear their baby's ugly, right? So was that hard for you to take that kind of feedback? For sure. I think um, it's definitely hard 
to get negative feedback in, in sort of any capacity. But I think it's something I, as a writer, realize that pretty early on that you need to have a thick skin going about it, that you can write, you know, the best story ever, and there's still going to be people who just absolutely hate it. You know, there's probably a ton of people out there who hate the movie Citizen Kane or things like that, even though it's like regarded as one of the best movies ever. Um, so I think part of that comes with the territory as well as knowing that what you learn, you know, when your first book or two comes out, that feedback can help you write better books in the future. You know, it's not all over when your first book comes out and uh, that feedback's just the best way to improve. When you, um, when you sit down to do improvements after people say, I didn't really like that. How do you delineate between, you know, personal preference, as you mentioned, you know, you're not going to be everybody's cup of tea and, and real usable stuff that you can go back to make your writing even better. How do you uh, do that point of differentiation? Well, the best and easiest indication is when that feedback is coming from multiple people. If multiple people give you that same piece of feedback, that's a really good sign of, hey, something is wrong here that sort of transcends their personal opinion. Um, and, and also just if there's things that you have a gut feeling that you know are great about your story or things that you think are pretty strong about it, and uh, someone gives a criticism about that specific part you're really proud of, that usually can be a sign of, hey, it just didn't click with them. Um, you can sort of be have to be careful with that because you can arrive at a place where you're just dismissing criticism outright that is valid. But um, I think sort of with time and as you know, books come out and as you get more feedback, you sort of get that intuitive sense of, hey, this is something that applies to one person versus this is something I need to go back to the drawing board with. Our buddy Calvin Fisher, our guest today on the Big Time Talker podcast, and I don't want to give you a big head, but you know, a lot of people are saying you're like the hotshot, young, sci-fi, dystopian thriller writer, and and when you hear that, uh, do you give it that Midwest aw shucks, I don't know, or do you think mm, maybe they're onto something? Maybe I really can do this for a living for the rest of my life. Um, I guess I'd say it's always been the dream to do it full time as a career, and I think. I've got to have that hope that I, I do have the potential to reach that point. So I see it as pretty validating in a lot of that sense, but also um, careful not to get a big head about things. Uh, you know, every book you've um, got to treat with that same critical eye and realize that you're not always the big hot stuff. And uh, you've just really got to be careful to give it everything you can every time. You got married recently, and I'm wondering, uh, did you get the support at home from the missus, or is she like, hey, hey, you, long-haired guy, get a real job. Get out of yeah, the house. She is super supportive, and she uh, she provides some of the best feedback, I'd say. Uh, she can go really in-depth with it. Is she, Sometimes a little, is she brutal? Yeah, 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 she's pretty brutal. Sometimes a little too much, where it's like, oh, that, that hurts a little bit. Um, <laughs> but I think... I'd rather have it come from her before the book comes out than afterwards when everyone's like, Hey, this really needed to change. And at that point it's too late. The book's already out. Um, I always appreciate getting feedback before it comes out, obviously, because then I can go and fix it. Um, I think that's one of the hardest points is when you get valid feedback that you know is correct, but you know, it's, there's nothing you can do about it that go around um, when a book's out. That's usually sort of, the end of it, so to speak. 
So when I talk to writers, Calvin, I talk to a lot of folks who write nonfiction or maybe they write about politics or current events, but you're in a whole different world and literally a whole different world. And I've always wondered how people like you that, that are world builders, whether it's in the video game space, the movie or TV space or the author space, how you keep track of the detail that goes into that world and how you don't get, you know, characters mixed up or timelines mixed up. Is there some sort of magic flow chart in the Calvin Fisher, uh, you know, quiver of arrows that you do that? How, how do you keep it all straight? Yeah, I have a lot of uh, planning documents for sure, where it's just a whole bunch of characters, what, where they're at in the story, where they're going. Um, and it can be really hard. And I think as one of those world building writers, it can be one of the biggest fears where someone will just point out, hey, here's this big glaring hole that makes everything completely fall apart like a deck of cards. But I think a lot of it comes down to, with my first book especially, uh, with this post-apocalyptic world, a large part of it is this toxic gas that you know everyone has to deal with and uh, live with. And being able to orient a lot of how the society is built around that feature, I think it gave it sort of a grounding anchor that made it a lot easier to figure things out and keep it consistent. Is there any truth, Calvin, to the, the rumor that's going around that you base the whole toxic gas on, on your college roommate? Is there any? <laughs> uh, so, luckily not. That that sounds like that would have been a miserable time. If that, <laughs> that was the, the basis for it. Not a page turner that any of us need, huh? Yeah. Sounds like a nightmare to me. Hey, let's, let's get into this sort of nightmare scenario for Apocalypse Bounty, your first book, which, you know, as we talked about, was self-published and then, you know, people started to read it and pretty soon publishers are knocking on your door and you got a deal. And then this follow-up storm rise, talk about uh, sort of the world that, that you've set up with, with this character with, with Mark Northfield and, and what happens in apocalypse bounty and then in, in storm rise. Yeah. So what's really cool is a lot of the world building in the first book was around the city of cumulus, which sort of in the region is, kind of the one big city left. Um, and it was really cool to see how the city adapted to the toxic gas and just the, the different things that came up. Like one of the details I kind of liked was they'd have a lot of neon signs sort of at the lower levels where the gas was the thickest. So people could see a lot easier the different signs and things like that to go to a restaurant or bar. But um, because of that, it, it had this really like hazy kind of tacky look. Um, and in the second book, um, Northfield is brought to the other um, the other network region. The network is sort of this big um, sort of shadowy organization that spans what's left of the United States. And there's different uh, groups of it. He's brought to a different region where there's an entirely new city that hardly anyone knows about uh, called New Medea. So it was really cool to explore a whole new city with um, different aspects to it where there are similarities because they both had to survive in this toxic gas environment, but it had a different philosophy when it was built and, uh, and things like that. So it, I think that part of it was really cool to explore. I thought it was interesting when the first book apocalypse bounty came out. Um, it was during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic and nobody really knew what was happening there. And there were some, some similarities between this thing that came out of your head and what eventually happened in the world. And you wrote Apocalypse Bounty before any of the pandemic, right? 
Yeah, a lot of the ideas came forward. I started writing and finished the first draft in 2017. And a lot of it was thinking about what would just be sort of a, a miserable environment to live in. And I thought, in a world where you had to sort of strap on a mask to go outside and the sort of outdoors would would kill you would be pretty miserable. And, you know, COVID came around and sure enough, we're all strapping on masks to go outside and feeling miserable about it. Um, so I think because of that, that might a little bit be responsible for some of the good reviews because people could probably relate to the setting maybe a little bit better than they could another post-apocalypse. It, it almost grounded it in a way, which, I'm not going to pretend I was a genie with my lamp uh, rubbing it and figuring that out, but um, I, I think it was sort of a happy coincidence or unfortunate, depending on perspective, that they there's that sort of reflection with real life. Well, it certainly you know made you think. It's uh, things that make you go hmm. Right. Uh, the books are Apocalypse Bounty. The brand new one is called Stormrise. It's due soon from Headline Books. Award-winning author Calvin B. Fisher is our guest on the Big Time Talker podcast. If you have questions for Calvin, you want to find him online. The website is calvinfishermedia.com. He's a regular blogger, also working on a screenplay that I want to ask you about in a minute. Um, how much of, of Mark Northfield is Calvin Fisher and how much of Calvin Fisher is Mark Northfield, your central character? That's a great question. I think uh, a large part is this sort of wry humor he has, I think was a nice sort of way to express um, myself as well as just some of his outlook and views on the world where I think um, places I could relate to him a lot. A lot of the inspiration too came from the Spider-Man comics I grew or read growing up. He has a lot of similarities to Peter Parker, especially with his conversations with uh, with God and the spiritual parts he had in there. So I think it's just sort of a meshing of different parts of, you know, me as well as that character and sort of various other inspirations and, uh, you know, just some stuff pulled out of thin air too. You, uh, you mentioned Spider-Man. I know you're a big comics guy. These books... Um... I'm sure you'd love everybody to read them, but I think they resonate well with comics fans too. I think there's some similarities between these and, and great graphic novels. And yet you don't have that visual aid of the comics. And there's all kinds of talk Calvin about how younger people, especially younger guys don't really like to read as much anymore unless there's that visual component or there's that, that video game interactivity so I'm, I'm wondering if that was in the back of your head when you're writing these books in terms of how to overcome it. For sure. I think sort of my background is a big comic book reader. I, there's a certain way I like things visualized when reading a book. I like when things are, there's enough there to get sort of this very nice, I almost like to describe it as a watercolor painting look of what's going on. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to bog people down with paragraphs and paragraphs of detail. You want it to sort of be as short and striking as you can to give people a clear image and then move on. And I think that reflects the comic book reading experience because you look at the image, you grasp it, take it in, and then you usually move on to the dialogue and read that, move on to the next panel. And I think it's not something I guess I've consciously thought about, but now that you've brought it up, I, I think my writing probably reflects that as far as sort of an image being painted, getting to sort of the action dialogue and then painting the next image. Um, 
So I, I do think the writing was aimed at people who do love post-apocalyptic science fiction settings or just a good character story, but people who may not want to be bogged down by all the detail overwhelming you can usually get from the genre. I, I tried to pace it a lot more like a thriller. With, with that first book, Apocalypse Bounty, um, I wonder if, if you've thought, and maybe you have a storm rise too, have you ever thought about making it into a comic or a graphic novel? Because that's a, that's a passion point for you. And you know, those DC Marvel guys, they do pretty good with things. I have, yeah. I think a graphic novel adaptation would be perfect for this story. And I think it could have some really awesome art. I think just the thing with a, a comic book is you just need to find the right artist for it. it it's sort of more of a team effort. So I would love to do that someday, but I think it would just be, you know, connecting with either the right people to, um, to get the right artist or right publisher, you know, things like that. You, uh, you also did something that, that a lot of authors uh, dream of, and that is you got this big time New York city based voiceover actor, Vince Caruso to be the voice of Mark Northfield and do an audio book of apocalypse bounty that's pretty cool stuff yeah i've just been blown away by the work vince has done on it he's just been such a pleasure to work with and when listening to audiobook i'm so impressed by how he can flip between different characters and get the essence of so many um it, it's really been a treat to work with him and i think people who like audiobooks or even if you want to try one for the first time i think i think you'd get a lot out of this book and vince's job on it and you can find that, I guess, at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and uh, and also find Calvin at, at HeadlineBooks.com as uh, his publisher. When you listen to your audiobook, I'm trying to put myself in into your brain a little bit. This is somebody who's performing stuff that came out of your head, right? That's got to be a, a sort of a mind-bending kind of situation. It's surreal, for sure. I think it like you said, seeing someone else's interpretation of your work is an experience that I don't think you really get used to or understand until it really happens. And I would, yeah, especially the first couple of chapters I heard, it was a really, I don't know how to describe this aside from almost out of body experience where you're listening and like, this is out of my head, but someone else is performing it. It, it was really awesome. Hey, these books, you know, they take place in this dystopian future where things are not good. You can't breathe the air. You got to wear the mask. Um, when we all had to go through that in real life, to a certain extent, clearly there are differences in that world and the one we were in. But why in the world do you think people were so drawn to that story when they had to put up with the nonsense in real life, you know? I think, I think because, people want to get away from it, you know? Yeah. I think there's also something people really gravitate to when they see characters um, thrown into some of just the worst situations, especially ones they deal with and seeing them persevere and I guess problem solve and figure their way out through. It can be a really great form of escape as well as just sort of ability to reflect and figure out how you can sort of overcome those problems in your own life. Um, so I think it's a, ends up being sort of a really good way of dealing with it. And luckily, I think the world presented in my book is different enough where it still feels like an escape. I think usually those similarities aren't so close to home where people start thinking of the real world right away. 
So Calvin B. Fisher is our guest today, and uh, this is a guy that Sci-Fi and Fantasy Magazine says is an author to certainly keep an eye out for. Journey Planet calls Apocalypse Bounty, Calvin's first book, a fantastic and impressive work. The new book is Stormrise, and uh, central character has lost track of time. It starts in this, this really dark, dank prison scenario. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, Northfield in, in, for folks who have not read the books as a guy. I mean, he's essentially a regular guy. Yeah, he is definitely down to earth. He has a lot of struggles, especially in this world. He's trying to figure out what the right thing to do is, but in all the grim difficulties, he, he just has a tough time finding where to take his next step. And I think that's sort of a message that readers can really relate to as well as um, he profoundly misses his wife and is sort of still dealing with that and likes talking to her in his head and usually has a lot of just wry, interesting conversations with her and God. Um, and is a way he can sort of process what's going on. And I think sort of those elements are things that you don't really see too much in other characters especially in this sort of genre and i think it's sort of a form of character and writing that readers have seemed to really be connecting to this may be a tough question for you but to, to help potential readers who are not familiar with your stuff sort of visualize what they're getting into because it is an investment right an investment of time if you pop down on the on the couch and you want to read a, a calvin fisher book so let me put it to you this way uh, to, to help people decide whether you're for them. If you like blank, you'll also like Apocalypse Bounty. If you like blank, you'll also like Stormrise. Who who would you compare your stuff to? I think sort of a pr pretty big comparison is The Road by Cormac McCarthy. It's a very similar post-apocalypse in that sense where it's a world of sort of ash and it's about a father who is a very relatable character and his struggles to get his son just through into the next step. And I think you can really see that in Mark Northfield's journey where he's just trying to take the right step uh, just one at a time. I also think if you like, um, I think especially if you like sort of comic book characters, if you really like the character of, um, you know, Captain America or Spider-Man, just sort of those noble characters who are put in really tough moral quandaries you get a lot out of this book. And I, I think it goes at a pace that that sort of reader would really appreciate. Um, and yeah, if any, anybody likes video games and they really connect with post-apocalypse settings like fallout or the last of us, um, I think it would be a great draw. What happened to those fallout guys? They did a, a game about my home state of West Virginia and it was not well received, broke my heart. Yeah, not at all. But the, Virginia environment was beautiful, at least. So <laughs> they got they got that right. It so looked can, good. You take a little it was play. not as much fun to play. Yeah. So when you're not writing, are you a gamer? Do you still sit down and, and do some gaming on a regular basis? I do, yeah. It's it's a hobby I definitely enjoy between, you know, my desire and love for writing and drawing. Uh, I, I managed to somehow squeeze some of that in. Um, and yeah, I'm usually drawn to worlds people create. So, you know, the fantasy genre, post-apocalypse dark are usually my big draws with that too. Is that part of the inspiration? Where, where does the inspiration come from uh, to, to sort of get those creative juices flowing? Is it video games? Is it movies? Is it TV? Where, where do you draw from? 
I'd say video games is usually one of the big draws for my creative work, just because I think being able to very, I guess, visually see a setting and explore it and sort of touch and feel it is really compelling. I think especially sort of the post-apocalyptic landscapes of games like The Division um, and Fallout were, you know, really inspiring. And they they played a little bit of the part in wanting to write a, a sort of post-apocalyptic setting. It, the environment just really captivated me. Calvin B. Fisher's brand new book, Stormrise, available for pre-order now from Headline Books. Um, your publisher, so high on you, entered you for some awards and you won some pretty big time awards. So tick off a couple of those for us. Yeah, so I think one of the biggest was the honorary mention I got at the uh, 2021 um, California Book Festival, Southern California Book one. So that was really cool to see um, and, and just to get acclaims that way. So the movie um, people, the movie people, the Southern California, the Hollywood people, they may be looking at, at these books. How great would that be to see Apocalypse Bounty or Storm Rise or a, a mashup of those two on the big screen? Would you dig that? Oh, of course. I think it's hard to find a writer who wouldn't. Um, I, I do think, too, sort of with a lot of those comic book and, and visual influences, I think it would be an environment and, and sort of story that would lend itself really well to the big screen. And I'd really love to always get more people introduced to the world and have it connect with more people. Cause you know, some people really connect to books, but some people really connect to other mediums. So I'm always open and happy to uh, expand and, and broaden those horizons. You know, the, those movie people, they're bad to come in and, and want to fiddle around with the story a little bit though. They might say, Oh, you know, this is really good, but I think, you know, Mark Northfield should be Mark South City. And, uh, you know, it doesn't need to be in the future. Maybe this happened during Prohibition in the 1930s. <laughs> so uh, as a guy who, who has 100% ownership of this thing now, I mean, the, your publisher made very few minor changes to it. Would it be tough for you to give up some of that sort of ownership and, and let somebody else deviate from the story? Yeah, it would be really tough. I think you just have that reticence to see anything with your work change because you spend years on it and you make all these super deliberate decisions that you make for a reason. Um, I think sometimes those choices um, directors and producers make for film are the right call. Um, Just not everything can translate super well to the big screen. Um, I think sometimes things are changed that are certainly not necessary. So it's one of those things where I think if I was um, had the grace to get to a point where someone was considering making a movie with it. Um, I, I think I'd take it in stride. And once I get to that bridge, I'd, I'd hopefully have to deal with it. You know, I certainly have some lines that I, I just won't be comfortable with them to cross, but I, I try to be as open-minded as possible. Do you, um, when you write these books, do you cast them visually in your mind, in other words, do you know, you know, if you could wave a magic Calvin Fisher one and cast a Mark Northfield, who that actor would be in, in an ideal world? Usually when I am writing, I think of it in sort of those comic book terms. I actually think of the character in the sort of visual style of some of the artists I really like and what it would look like having them draw the character. Oh, that's interesting. That sense. So not a real person then, but more of yeah. a rendering. Yeah, so usually I think there's sort of two comic book artists, Mark Bagley and another guy named 
John Romita Jr. And I, I just sort of picture the characters and what they look like in their stylings. Um, as sort of the book's gone on and come out and more people have asked who I think the actor would fit it. I think one of the best who I've seen who has a lot of range and would be good with it is Wyatt Russell. Um, I think he could do a really good job and sort of captures the look and essence of the character. Um, and if folks are not familiar with Wyatt Russell, what movies would they have seen him in or TV shows? Um, the big ones I've seen him in is he was in that Overlord movie, sort of the World War II zombie one. He yep. was also, the big thing I saw him in was the Black Mirror. Uh, he was in one of those episodes. It was sort of one about virtual reality. And maybe the most well-known was he was in the, I think the Winter Soldier and Captain America TV show that came out, which I'd, I'd never actually seen that show. So I, I can't comment on his performance there, but what I saw from Black Mirror and um, Overlord, I thought it would, it would be pretty cool to see him play the main character. All right, Wyatt Russell, if you or your agent is listening, Calvin Fisher is interested in you optioning this book from Headline Books and getting it made. Um, the new book, not that the first book was, you know, it, but happy, happy, joy, joy kind of thing. A trip down uh, Daisy Lane. The new one feels darker to me. It feels like he's in, you know, in a world of hurt uh, from the giddy up. And, and I wonder if that is more challenging to make, uh, you know, a really dark situation compelling and, and to, you know, work humor in and to work in uh, some light into a dark story, a dark space. Yeah, I think it definitely starts in a lot darker place than the first one, because the first one, um, for readers unfamiliar, did end in a pretty tough spot and things got really hard for him. There were sacrifices. His friends were lost. He ended up getting caught by this organization, the network, who is uh, understandably pretty angry with him at the end of the first book. So. Yep. Just from there, he is in a really tough space. But I think that's part of what's compelling is it's not just sort of wallowing in this despair, um, at least not for long. It's about him sort of facing all these odds at his feet and just, as I was sort of saying, taking it step step by step, just trying to find his way in this new environment where in this new city where everyone's hunting him down and just trying to survive and uh, and just try to do something right in the world. The rub on a lot of, of sci-fi fantasy books um, is that they're story driven and not necessarily character driven. Um, and if you talk to, you know, nine out of 10 readers, they really, really are, are compelled by the characters of the book. And I wonder how you as a guy who's creating this fantastic world, get readers emotionally invested in Mark Northfield as a, a human being to get him to care about that character. What do you do to make that happen? I think the biggest thing is just having an honesty and earnestness when writing, um, presenting him as a human first. And it can be a little tough for the plot sometimes, um, sort of working through some problems writing because you want the character to act as naturally to themselves as you can. And sometimes you're like, oh, I really want to take the the plot this way, but he just wouldn't do that. And I think that's what takes a lot of people out, a lot of movies and TV. Probably the biggest thing past any big plot holes is when a character does something completely out of their Outside normal their character. behavior. Right. Yeah, just to take the plot in a different direction. And I think audiences see through that in a second. Like you can't pull the rug over on them that way. So when I'm writing him, uh, one of my 
goals with him is just to make him the most sort of earnest character that there can be. And I think with the first book, that's really struck a chord with people. You know, it's interesting you say that, Calvin, because there's all the, you know, the, the knocks on young people that, that, you know, the, the younger folks don't have the same moral compass that, that their forefathers did. And of course, every generation says that, you know, you kids get off my lawn. <laughs> um, and yet some of the, the most compelling stories that are out there and the most highly rated, uh, like for example, the, the new Jack Reacher series on Amazon prime is about this, this noble, earnest hero, much like Mark Northfield. And, and I wonder what it was to you that, that made you want to develop that kind of guy, a Captain America kind of guy. There's still a place for those kind of heroes today. I think a big reason was exactly for what you described is it feels like with writers today, there's just a lack of characters like that. Um, and even sometimes when characters are trying to be written in a noble way, there's just something so off where they'll do something, uh, I guess, morally abhorrent that sort of the the writer treats it as something morally right. And I think that really off puts readers. Um, like I remember reading a, a comic where there's a hero who someone said something mean to them. So they crashed their car into a pole. And it's like, that's not really a heroic thing, but the way it was written, it was treated like that, you know, oh, that's just what that person deserved and it was right. And I think that sort of disconnect I've sort of noticed in a lot of media is sort of what wanted me to write sort of a good hero who had a lot of flaws and made a lot of mistakes, but at their core, they had an earnest goal to be a good person. You know, we, we have gotten away from some of that, I think, with our sports figures and our entertainment figures and Certainly here in Washington, D.C., our politicians, we uh, we need more Mark Northfields in this world and we need more Calvin Fishers. So uh, Stormrise about to come out. Would you recommend that someone read Apocalypse Bounty first to understand what's happening in Stormrise? Or if they see Stormrise on the bookshelf at their local Barnes and Noble, and they go, mm, that cover looks interesting. That story looks good. Can they read Stormrise and then get caught up? They can read it. Uh, it is a direct sequel to the first one. So there's a certain amount of baggage that's unavoidable bringing into the second book. So I, I think the readers would get a lot out of reading the first one uh, first. And I think it would greatly improve their experience. But you can just jump into the second one. It takes place in a new environment. And a lot of the story threads are a lot more present at the first part but since it's moving to a whole new city with a lot of new characters it i wouldn't say it's mandatory reading if the plot of the second and what's going on sounds you know more engaging to a reader i i'd say they can jump in but um i guess as a writer sort of biased and of course i want everyone to read every one of my books but um the publisher yeah, not, will be all about that the publisher yeah. is like yeah buy them both and pick yeah. up the audio book and pre-order the comic that hasn't been written yet yeah yeah, so I'd say not mandatory. You won't be lost. You'll be able to understand what's happening just fine. But I'd say strongly recommended to to read the first. Favorite part of being a sci-fi writer? What do you like the most? I'd say just that ability to create a new world. And uh, I think it just gives a lot of opportunity to put characters and people into just situations that would be harder to do in real life. And take them to places you wouldn't be able to. And I think it, it just gives people the bond, I think, of really connecting with them. Um, 
So I think just the ability to work with those characters in those cool places. You know, you, uh, you talked about earlier in the conversation that you started the first book, Apocalypse Bounty, in 2017. How long did it take you to write that book all in? All in, it, I guess it got published in 2020 for the first time. So, you know, three years in total. I, the first draft probably took about six or seven months, but it was something I just would leave, come back to do more work on it, leave and come back. So it was definitely a long uh, process. So I was just really happy to see across the finish line and especially just the, the warm response that's received from pretty much everyone. I've just been, it's just such a great feeling to see all that work um, just pay off and create something that readers really enjoy and connect with. What about the new book, Stormrise? Did that one take you? Well, it couldn't have taken you as long as that because it's going to come out uh, before the end of 2022. How long did it take you to write Stormrise? Let's see. So it probably took me about in total a year to write. Um, I did sort of, I realized I wanted to take it in a different direction. So I ended up sort of scrapping a lot of it and starting over and so that sort of lengthened the process a bit. Um, so once I restarted over, it took probably about eight months or so. Um, so yeah, definitely, I think just as you get more experience writing and go through the process of publishing a book, you becoming more familiar with everything and knowing sort of where a book needs to get to before publishing, I think um, it just you learn to go quicker. You feel like your writing has changed, uh, improved from the first book to the second book? I think so. I think the prose is a lot stronger. I've, you know, gotten a better handle just through all the feedback of what, what needs to be there. I've learned to cut out a lot of detail. I think that was the biggest learning experience on the first is from the moment I handed it to my first editor to the moment I got it back. It was crazy how much of the book we cut out that just didn't. A lot of red lines, huh? Yeah. A lot of red lines. Mark that out. Yeah. So I think, um, learning more of when to, when to cut back and, and be more brief is probably the biggest lesson I learned. You know, I thought it was interesting. You said that in writing storm rise, that you took the book in a different direction. You threw out a lot of previous work. I have a close friend who's a New York times, number one, best-selling author did the same thing. He was three quarters of the way finished with the book and said, well, this isn't right. And just put it away and started all over again. How do you know when that happens or when you get, you know, writer's block and how, how do you overcome those sorts of writer's challenges that, that everybody, I guess, who does this for a living comes to, do you get up and walk away? Do you take a long walk? Uh, How do you, how do you reset? Yeah. With that, it at least was pretty easy. I could, I could just tell it wasn't working and even just writing new chapters were difficult because none of it was really clicking or feeling right with the way it was going. Um, And I think a big part was just admitting to myself that I needed to start over. Um, and it's, it's a hard thing to do as a writer, but I, it's something I think that sort of separates the people who do it more professionally versus the hobbyists, just as far as having that ability to tell when something just is not working and you need to start over just that awareness. Storm rise is the brand new book in the Northfield saga second book in that series from Calvin B. Fisher, the first book, Apocalypse Bounty, big-time award winner. Both are from Headline Books. Calvin, thanks for hanging out today. Good luck with the new book. 
Yeah, thank you so much. Excited. Uh, it was great talking to you and really excited to get this book in readers' hands and uh, get to experience more of Mark Northfield's journey. We are fans in our studios at the Big Time Talker podcast. Uh, brought to you in part by SpeakerMatch.com. Thank you, Speaker Match. Thank you to our guest, Calvin B. Fisher, award-winning sci-fi author. The new book, Storm Rise, due any day now. Pre-order it from our pals at Headline Books, who uh, we simulcast on Zoom into books every once in a while. They let us crash their party. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you, Belinda, and the whole team there at Headline Books. And thank you for listening and being with us today. From our studios here in Washington, D.C., I'm Burke Allen. Sure do appreciate you being here. Go out and make it a great day. Bye, everybody.